Good morning, church. As we continue our worship in the Word together, let's go ahead and bow in prayer. Um, Father, we are grateful, grateful that we can gather together uh, worshiping Jesus together. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to just lay it all at your feet. As we come to your Word, we do declare we surrender all. Um, Father, we pray that you would go before us as we dig into your Word. What we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, we ask that you'd make us, and we ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You know, when you're growing up and you have to wait five minutes, how many of you know five minutes can feel like a lifetime? But as you sit down next to a loved one who's getting ready to pass from this life into the next, how many of you know five minutes doesn't seem to last long enough as you spend those final moments with a loved one? Um, Scotty McCreary wrote some lyrics that capture that in a song about his grandfather when he said this, at 86, my grandpa said, there's angels in the room. All the family gathered round, knew the time was coming soon. With so much left I, to say, I prayed, Lord, I ain't finished. Just give me five more minutes. You know, if you're here this morning and you've ever wondered what happens when we pass from this life in to the next. What did Jesus teach about life beyond the grave? That's what we're going to talk about this morning in the Gospel of Luke, where I invite you to open your Bibles with me. Luke chapter 16 will be in verses 19 to 31 together. And we'll be talking about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and consider what it reveals about life after death. You know, as you head there in your Bibles, the Parables are what we're in a current series on. We've chosen a select number of parables that we're continuing to talk about. And last time we were introduced to the purpose of the parables. The parables aren't just fancy stories that entertain us or that entertain the crowds that Jesus spoke to. But rather the parables had a purpose. Number one, it was to reveal the truth of the kingdom of God to those whose faith was genuine. To those who had a real desire to get to know Jesus... But the purpose of the parables was also to conceal the truth of the kingdom of God that came through faith in Jesus, because he's the ruler and the one who reigns over all things, to conceal truth about the kingdom from those whose hearts had already been hardened. And so as we get to this parable, we're reminded of what the purpose of the parables is all about. And in the context that we're in, because it's so important when we're taking a look at the parables, if we're going to really understand them, we should always ask ourselves two questions, and it's context and culture. I would always encourage you, if you write in your Bibles, or if you make a note on any parable, right before you read that parable, context and culture. And uh, when you take a look at chapter 16, verse 14, you learn that Jesus, in the parable we're going to read about, is talking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the Jewish leaders of the day. When you think of those who are Jewish leaders, when you think of those who are the spiritual leaders of the day, it was the Pharisees. And if you thought that someone... Who was on the right path to heaven, who would that be? You would think it was the Jewish leaders of the day. You would think it was the, the Pharisees. If you had questions about spiritual matters, if you wanted to know what happens when you transfer from this life to the next, or, or how to get to heaven versus and how to avoid hell, you would talk to the Jewish leaders. But Jesus often was critical of the Jewish leaders for a couple of reasons. Number one, because the Pharisees were self-righteous. They were self-righteous in the sense that they were trusting in their external behavior to get them to heaven or to put them in a right standing with God. 
In other words, they were religious and they trusted in their ritual, but their hearts were far from God and they didn't have a genuine relationship with God. So Jesus was often critical of them for being self-righteous. But secondly, as we see in chapter 16, verse 14, they are also described by Jesus as lovers of money. And this is very important to our parable today because as lovers of money, they believed that those who were wealthy, it was a sign of God's favor and blessing over your life. And so you were blessed by God. But if you were poor, that was a curse of God. And so what they believed is because they were wealthy as lovers of money, they believed that their wealth was evidence that their salvation was secure. Because if indeed God is just and he is going to bless those who are righteous, wouldn't he bless you with material wealth? And if God is just, how could he, a just God, allow a righteous person to suffer And yet Jesus is going to show them they are completely off track by telling them this parable as we consider what it reveals about life beyond the grave. Would you stand in honor of the reading of the word? Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19 and following. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his feet, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father, Abraham, Have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. The word of the Lord, you all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. This morning, we are considering what we learn about life beyond the grave, or what happens when we pass from this life into the next, from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus begins to tell the story in verses 19 to 21 by giving us um, the story of two very different people who are living very different lives. If I could describe the first man who is the rich man, I'd describe him as a billionaire. He had more money than you could ever imagine, more money than he could possibly use. And so you've got a billionaire on one side and then you've got a beggar on the other. 
The manner in which the rich man is introduced in verse 19 is this way. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. First, if we could describe this rich man, he is unnamed. Now that shouldn't surprise you because whenever Jesus told parables, no one is named in the parable or the story that he tells. But this parable is unusual that while he is unnamed as the rich man, the poor man, the beggar, is named. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But he's an unnamed rich man. He's a certain man. Secondly, we're told that he's clothed in purple and fine linen. Uh, The color purple was hard to come by in the first century. If you wanted the color purple, you had to extract it from snails. And so to come by any kind of purple clothing was a sign of great wealth. If you had any kinds of outer garments that were purple, it was showing off, hey, we are wealthy and we are living our best life in this life right now. Now, for you and I, it's not purple that we wear if we want to show we've got some money in the bank, right? We want to show off that we've got some money in the bank and we've got expensive clothing and we're living luxuriously and extravagantly. You get the name brand stuff. I remember when I lived in Dallas during seminary, I once decided to walk into one of those expensive stores, you know. And I remember walking in and seeing a jacket. I thought it was expensive, but I didn't know it was this expensive. I remember putting on that jacket and looking at the tag. I thought it was like maybe, maybe $500, maybe $1,000. It said $5,000 for this jacket. And I, I was feeling, I was like, it doesn't feel like $5,000. I could get this same jacket for 100 bucks at the mall. But nevertheless, it must have been some kind of name brand. When you take a look at this man and the way he dressed, he dressed in purple. He didn't just have one pair of purple clothes. He had purple clothes that he was wearing on a daily basis. It tells us that he fared sumptuously, which means that he was part of a banquet of prosperity every day. And when you're at a banquet, you got to look good at the banquet. And so he had to dress the part every single day. He dressed to impress. And so he's wearing purple garments. Secondly, it says fine linen. Purple garments refer to his outer garments. The fine linen linen refers to his undergarments. Some people don't have enough money to put clothes on their back. This guy is wearing luxurious underwear. And so this man is incredibly wealthy. That's the whole point here. He's got purple outer garments. He's got um, fancy linen in terms of his undergarments. And then it goes on to tell us that he um, fared sumptuously every day. So every day was a banquet. Every day was a party. Now, I don't know how many banquets you attend or how often you attend them or how many big banquets that you put on, but when I think of the biggest banquet or party that I've been a part of, it was my wedding day. And on that wedding day, I mean, we went all out. We dressed the part. We dressed to impress. My wife, she had the dress. I had the suit. Um, We invited all of the different people to come, family members and friends to come and celebrate. And I just looked it up how much the average wedding in Oregon costs, $20,000. And that's just the bare minimum, right? And so if you're going to put on a banquet once in a lifetime, you're going to spend some good money. This guy's putting on a banquet every day. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I can't host a banquet every single day. I don't have the finances. I definitely don't have the, uh, enough of the people to invite to that daily banquet. But this man was living his best life in terms of luxury, in terms of extravagance. When you think of all of the wealth and the food that you would eat, I mean, he's eating filet mignon every day. I mean, it's the best of the best. He's really enjoying his best life. And so we're introduced first to the rich man. He's a billionaire. Secondly, we're introduced to a man of great contrast from him who is described as a beggar. The text goes on to say, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. Uh, he's a beggar and he has a name. And this is unusual for the parables of Jesus. <clears throat> and having a name, we have to consider what does Lazarus mean? Whether you realize that or not, Lazarus means God helps. And when you take a look at Lazarus, you would take a look at a man who is helpless and is sitting at the gate of the rich man begging for food as dogs are wicked, licking his open sores. And you can't help but think to yourself, how is this a man whom God helps? If this is a man whom God helps, I'd hate to see the man who is not helped by God. And it looks as if Lazarus is in a state of agony in this life, and the other man is experiencing great luxury, and his name is Lazarus. I'd like to suggest for a moment, too, the reason he's named is while, as we read about him, he doesn't have a lot of people around him. People would see him in the open sores and the dogs licking his wounds and most likely people would continue to walk on by. Some individuals have brought him to the gate hoping that this rich man will alleviate some of his suffering. Nevertheless, this is a man who is a beggar and I would say the reason he is named here is because while no one may know his name except for the dogs who come around him may know him and lick his wounds, God knows his name. Now, this is a story, but I want to tell you for just a moment, I don't know what hardship you go through or suffering you endure, whether you're alone or you think that no one knows about the suffering you're going through, but God does. And I want you to know God knows your name and he knows my name. And so he's a beggar, his name is Lazarus, the text goes on to say, and it says he is sickly, he is full of sores. These sores are probably because he's a paralytic, he can't move, he can't walk, he can't get around. He's a cripple, and the text tells us he was laid at his gate, this man is helpless. They would bring him to the gate of a wealthy individual hoping that the man of extravagance and luxury will be able to at least give him some food for the day and they lay him at the gate for something to happen to him. This man is not experiencing the best this life has to offer in terms of luxury and extravagance. This man is experiencing agony, the worst this life has to offer. He's crippled, he's got open sores, and he's helpless. It tells us in verse 21, his only desire every single day is this, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. If you're going to get crumbs, this is the place to go. I mean, this guy's eating filet mignon every day. He's got those leftovers. They're going to throw them out. The dogs are going to come and scavenge for the food, and he can at least get the crumbs 
But nowhere in the text, at least in the story, does it tell us that this man shows any mercy to this individual in order to alleviate any of his suffering in regards to him sitting outside of the gate. And the picture is pretty vivid here, right? Like this gentleman, this man who is sickly, who is in agony, is sitting outside of the gate while he can hear the music going on and the party going on in that banquet. As he can hear the important people coming around, the celebrities and the politicians who I'm sure this rich man knew. He knew all of the best of the best. And so you've got a man living in luxury on one side of the gate and a man living in agony on the other. And so it tells us in verse 21, desiring to be fed with crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. What a sad reality. The dogs in the first century are not like our man's best friend today where you come and you pet them. These were animals who were scavengers. They were often those who carried diseases. When you think of the dogs back then, you can think of big cities where rats are and the dogs were looked at as rats are today. Those who carry disease, mangy animals who are looking for crumbs to eat that fall from the table. And this man who's already has the open sores is continually being infected, possibly can't even push away the dogs because they're licking him as he sits there. So we're introduced to a contrast of two very different people living two very different lives, one in luxury and one in abject poverty, living in great agony. Now, before I move forward, I'd like us to consider the context of the parable. Who is Jesus talking to here? He's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were self-righteous, but they were also lovers of money. And as lovers of money, they saw that those who were rich were those who were blessed by God and those who were poor as those who were cursed by God. And so the question you have to ask yourself up to this moment is what are the Pharisees thinking as Jesus tells this story? Wow, this guy, the rich man, is blessed. (laughs) You hear about the luxurious luxurious living he has, the extravagance he has. The Pharisees are thinking to themselves, God has blessed this man, not just richly, but so richly he can have a party every day and a great banquet every day. He's eating the best food. He's living the best life. This man is experiencing what greatness is all about. And the Pharisees looked at that rich man and said, that's just like us. And then they look at the poor man and say, well, the reason he's poor, the reason he's got these sores, the reason the dogs come around and lick his wounds is probably because he sinned in some great way. You might think that the Pharisees might come by if they even were willing to talk to a a man in this state and say, who sinned, you or your parents? This is a man who's living in abject poverty, but the reason he's living in abject poverty is probably because he deserves it in the mind of the Pharisees. If I could give us one takeaway before we move forward in this parable, it would be this, that we would guard our hearts from the deception of the Pharisees who believed their wealth was an evidence that their salvation was secure. That because of the blessing that they thought that they had through their wealth, their material wealth, they thought, I must be in a right standing with God. Because why would God bless me materially and bless me with all this help and all the rest if I was not righteous? And what we are warned to do 
is to guard against trusting in anything other than Christ and Christ alone to secure our salvation. For the Pharisees, it might have been their wealth. For the Pharisees, it might have been their ritual and religion. They didn't have a relationship with God. They obeyed the Mosaic law. Every dot was was, was dotted, every T was crossed, but their hearts were far from God. Are you trusting or am I trusting in anything other than the finished work of Christ on the cross to secure our salvation or to put us in a right standing before a holy, righteous God? The Pharisees looked at their wealth and said, yes, I am right. You know, the problem with wealth is this, is that when you're experiencing extravagance, money is not the problem, the love of money is. But what money can do is it can distract us into thinking that this life is the best life that we're going to live without ever preparing for the life to come and recognizing our desperate need for Jesus. And so the warning here before we move on is to guard our hearts from the deception of the Pharisees who trusted in their wealth as evidence that their salvation was secure when it's not. Is there anything we trust in to secure our salvation that is just a deception and a false reality. And so Jesus continues, and these Pharisees are thinking to themselves, yeah, that rich man, what a blessed man. That poor man, what a cursed man of God. What great evil has he done? And Jesus just turns this parable around. You can imagine these guys, these self-righteous individuals, as Jesus goes on in verse 22, and he says this, and so it was that the beggar died. You're thinking to yourself, well, of course he died. He's got these open wounds that are being licked by these dogs with disease. And he dies, and it says he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And so first, we're introduced to this beggar, and he dies. And in a moment, it's going to say that the rich man, he was buried. Now, why does it not mention that the poor man, the beggar, is buried? Probably because what happened to a beggar uh, if you didn't have any money, is they would take you to the city dump and they would burn your body there in the valley of Hinnom. And so that's what happened when you're a beggar. And what happens to this man? It tells us that the angels take him and take him to Abraham's bosom. And so this man, this beggar who lives in abject poverty, who's experiencing the worst that this life has to offer, he dies but it's interesting in our parable, at least the story, he doesn't die alone. He dies in the presence of the angels who take him from this life to the next. Now, some people might ask, okay, are you saying when we die and we pass from this life to the next, angels are present there? And the short answer to that question is, I don't know. If you take a look at the parable, it seems to suggest that, but I'd like to encourage us not to get caught up in the details we're not in an allegory where we take a look at every detail and dissect it and say, okay, this is what this detail means and that's what this detail means. But the major takeaway of our text is heaven is to be desired and hell is to be feared. And so that's our main point, but we get to see the story as it unfolds and we get to see that he's taken by angels and it just tells us of God's care for this man as he passes from this life to the next. And it's very comforting, I pray. And so he's taken to where? Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is a, a place of honor. It's a place of comfort. It's almost a picture here of being at a banquet in heaven that he's transferred to. And 
You know, when Jesus is at the Last Supper and he's with his disciples and they're eating a meal together, if you remember in the Gospel of John, John the Apostle, he's the, he describes himself as the apostle whom Jesus loved and it says that he was laying on Jesus' bosom. Why? Because when you sat and ate a meal, they didn't sit like we do. Like you sit at the table, they reclined at the table. And so, most likely, because most people are right-handed, God bless all our lefties, including myself this morning. And so most people were right-handed, and, and what they would do is they would recline, and they put their left um, um, elbow on a pillow, and as they're reclining, they would take their right hand, and they would eat food. And so you would sit around a table, and so there was someone in front of you, which was a position of honor if you're by Jesus or if you're by Abraham, and it says the person who is in front of him is the one who can lean back on his breast, on his bosom. So it was a place of honor. And this tells us that this man who once lived in abject poverty is now in the presence and by the side of Abraham of all people. Now for the Pharisees, this is impressive. Why? Because Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. He's the one to whom all of the promises have been given. According to Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, Abraham is the one who's given the promise that he and his seed, all through them, all the nations will be And so Abraham is a man of great prominence and a man of great respectability. And now he's in his presence and it's a position of honor and it's a place of great comfort. This man is transitioned from abject poverty and agony to a place of comfort and a place of honor right next to Abraham of all people. Isn't that amazing? And so the text continues and contrasts him with the rich man who died and was buried. This rich man is buried, and that's important because as a rich man, he put on a big funeral, I can imagine. Um, uh, re- earlier this year, my grandmother passed away, and so we were preparing for the services and taking care of everything, and we called like four mortuaries. And I can tell you, death is quite the business. <laughs> called four mortuaries and to do the same thing one mortuary said i'll give you we'll do everything you're asking for ten thousand dollars and then the other mortuary said we'll do that for two thousand dollars you say who's ripping me off here and so death can be an expensive business and it was no different for this rich man who had an incredible funeral i can imagine i'm sure at his funeral at his burial everyone was there i can imagine the celebrities and the politicians and everyone else who attended the banquets and I'm sure they had a lot of great things to say about this rich man. And the text tells us the rich man died and was buried. And in verse 23, it's a very sad, sad reality that we're faced with and that we need to consider this morning. It says, in being in torments in Hades. There are a number of different words that are used to describe hell. Hades is one of them. Hades is the place those who are unsaved, those who are lost go as they await final judgment that we read about in um, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. See, Gehenna, another term, it's used 11 times in the New Testament. You got Tartarus, a place where these wicked angels are going to go. We read about that as well. But it says here he ends up in Hades, and it's a place of torment, physical torment, emotional torment. And it says he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his, bosom, in, the, in his bosom. Now let me remind you, before you ask a bunch of questions like, 
wait a second. So you're saying people in hell can see those who are in heaven? Well, let's not get bogged into the details. We know that hell is a lonely place. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth where you get placed in a position of darkness. But for the sake of the story, Jesus is allowing this story to unfold this way. It doesn't necessarily mean that that is what's going to happen in eternity, that those in hell are going to see what's going on in heaven. But this man sees what's going on with Lazarus, the man who used to sit outside of his gate and beg for food as the dogs would lick his womb, and he's in a position of great honor next to Abraham. And of course, it says, his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus was in his bosom. We see a great reversal here. If I could pause here for a moment before we consider a dialogue that's going to take place between Abraham and the rich man, I'd have to pause here and say if there's a takeaway at this point, it would be this. Heaven and hell are real places. And because heaven and hell are real places, this is what Jesus is teaching here. There is life and death after the grave. You either will spend eternity in eternal life or you will be with God and his people forever or you will spend an eternity which is eternal death eternally separate because that's what death is it's a separation eternally separated from God and his people forever and ever and so this morning if there would be a takeaway at this point before we move forward and continue to talk about this parable it would be this heaven is to be desired and hell is to be feared heaven is to be desired hell is to be feared and if I could give you just a few things about hell up to this point, it would be this. Hell is a real place. It's not a state of mind. Hell is a real place. Heaven is described as a real place. Hell is a real place as well. In Matthew 25, 46, it says, And these, the unrighteous we're talking about here, will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Hell is a real place. It's not just a state of mind. Revelation eleven fifteen 15 says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Hell is a real place. In John 14, 2, we learn heaven is a real place. Why, not? Why wouldn't hell be a real place? Some people say, well, I believe in heaven, but I don't believe in hell. How could a good God allow good people to go to hell? And the reality is, well, sorry, no one's good. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So in heaven it says, John 14, 2, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. If heaven is a real place, hell is a real place as well. Secondly, hell is a place of physical torment. We have to consider these truths. It says in Matthew twenty two thirteen. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Heaven is a place of physical torment. Mark 9, 47 to 48 says, And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where, there, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is a place of physical torment. Thirdly, hell is a permanent place. We see that as we continue to read the parable as it unfolds. But Hebrews 9.27 says, And it is appointed for men to die once, but after that, 
judgment. There are some who you talk to and they would tell you, what happens to you five minutes after you die? Some people would say, well, you just cease to exist. You're annihilated. Ultimately, that's the idea of annihilation, that you, you live your life, you breathe your last breath, you cease to exist. The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus doesn't teach that. You will pass into an eternal ecstasy in the presence of God and his people forever and ever if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Or you will pass into an eternal agony separated from God and his people forever and ever. Hell is a real place. Hell is a permanent place. Hell is a place of physical torment. And so, as we consider these truths, I'd like us to be reminded that heaven is to be feared and I mean, hell is to be feared and heaven is to be desired. Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote a famous sermon and and preached it. uh, Sinners in the hands of an angry God and put it this way. If heaven is to be desired and hell is to be feared, he put this. The pit is prepared, the fire is made ready, the furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do not rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and hold and held over them, and the pit has opened its mouth under them. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. If I could give you one last idea about hell, hell is a place where sinners go who deserve it. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death, but the gift of, eter- but the gift of God is eternal life. All those who go to hell deserve it. And I can tell you, myself included, I'm deserving of hell. I've sinned. Along with the rest of humanity, I have a heart that is prone towards rebellion and not obedience to God. I've inherited my sin nature from my father, Adam, and I am deserving of God's eternal wrath and judgment, but I'm thankful for the good news of the gospel, which declares that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And I'm grateful that God so loved me and so loved you so much that he was willing to leave the glories of heaven, condescend into the incarnation, be born of a virgin, grow up to die on a cross, to pay my penalty, to take my place, to be my substitute, and to provide me a path to everlasting life. Heaven is to be desired. Hell is to be feared. Heaven and hell are real places. Well, the parable continues, and there are two requests that we read about that continue to give us more truths about life beyond the grave. Text continues in verse 24, and it says, Then he cried out. So the rich man, he sees Lazarus, the one whom God helps, in the, on the bosom of Abraham by his side, and he cries out, Father Abraham! Hey, you know what this tells us about the rich man? He's a religious guy. He's related somehow to Abraham, and so he's a descendant of his father Abraham, which is why he cries out, Father Abraham, you know who else are religious, whom Jesus is talking to? The Pharisees. Bunch of self-righteous lovers of money. Who is Jesus talking about here? He's talking straight to the Pharisees through the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And this rich man cries out, Father Abraham, you know me. I'm one of your descendants. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. I need you to help me out a bit. 
And we get a little glimpse into what's going on in Hades. It says, And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Listen, the rich man is in Hades. The rich man is in hell, but he hasn't changed much because he's still giving Lazarus commands to serve him. He says, hey, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to come and serve me. Dip his finger in some water and just give me a little break because it's tormenting here. And so when you go to hell, it doesn't change your heart. The reason there's weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell is because those who go there are shaking their fist at God and saying, how dare you? How dare you send me to an eternity of torment without you and your people forever and ever. And so he cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of my finger in water and cool my tongue. It's a terrible, terrible place. Hell is to be feared. Hell is to be shunned. Not a place we want to go. If it's a place that we don't want to go, if we truly love our neighbor as we love ourselves and we desire to get to heaven, would it not compel us to go and tell our neighbor if they're on the path to an eternal judgment and eternal and eternal torment hey jesus is the way out go through him believe on the lord jesus repent on your sin repent of your sin knowing that the day of judgment is on its way the patience of god will eventually run out let's turn to the lord jesus and believe on him verse 25 Abraham answers him. It's a fascinating story and a fascinating dialogue. Abraham said, son, I recognize you're one of my descendants, but we're reminded religion and ritual don't get you to heaven. Being a good person in your own mind doesn't get you into heaven because no one's good. Compared to other people, you may think you are good. The only thing that will get you to heaven is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, and now he is comforted, and you are tormented. Now this morning, if you read that verse and you're not considering the context and the culture, you might think to yourself, it sure sounds like rich people are going to hell and poor people are going to heaven. Now that's a problem because those who are rich, I would suggest, are those who have more than the clothes on their back and a roof over their head. And so we're in a difficult spot if you're here this morning because a majority of us, if not all of us, are incredibly wealthy. We're in a church this morning with heat and air conditioning when we need it. I mean, we've got lights. We've got everything we need. You talk about our best life now. We're experiencing it. Another reason this might be a problem is because Abraham, if you read about him in the Old Testament, he was rich. <laughs> Abraham was highly favored, wealthy, he had a lot of things. So what is being said here, what is being said here is for those who are lost, all the good they will experience is in this life. And that's it. The luxury, the extravagance, however great it is or, or not, all the good that they will experience is in this life, but for those who are saved and for those who have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus and have trusted in Him, all of the bad that they will experience, all of the agony, the hardship, even persecution for their faith is now. And when they enter into eternity, the best is yet to come. So why? 
Are believers motivated to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow after Jesus? What would motivate a group of disciples who follow Jesus for three years after he dies and rises from the dead to go out and give their life for the cause of Christ? Well, what would cause them to suffer and Christians all around the world to continue to suffer in closed countries is because the best is yet to come. And the worst you experience in this life will not compare to the great blessing that you will experience in the life to come. Eternal glory, eternal blessing in the presence of greatness, the presence of Jesus Christ, in the presence of the people of God. The great martyrs who have gone before us were in the presence of the prophets of old. We're, we're going to see them, Abraham, Elijah, and Elisha. We're going to see them and we're going to be with them. He says, you've experienced all the good that you're going to experience. He experienced all the bad that he's experienced and now... Things have changed. Things have been reversed. And it goes on to say, verse 26, And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed. There is a great chasm. There is a great separation that cannot be crossed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. By the time we pass from this life into the next, I have to tell you, it's too late. The day of salvation is today. Don't think to yourself, you know, I've got time. Can you sense the urgency that we're not promised tomorrow? That our loved ones are not promised tomorrow. And so if we're going to give a message of salvation, that Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost and point them to the Lord Jesus Christ, tomorrow is not the day to tell them. Today is the day if they pass from this life into the next, you can't go from heaven to hell or hell to heaven. Those places are permanent. There's a chasm that cannot be crossed. And so we get some truths about heaven and hell here in light of this parable. And you have to be reminded, listen, the Pharisees are here being confronted by this parable. And I want you to know it's good news for them. Because these self-righteous Pharisees, if they will allow God to soften their hearts, they have hope of salvation and everlasting life. If they will just set aside their pride and their self-sufficiency, trusting in their wealth or their status or their ritual or their religion, they can have the hope of everlasting life. Why does Jesus give the message of heaven and hell? Because he is a gracious, compassionate God who doesn't desire for these Pharisees or anyone else to suffer in hell forever and ever, but that we would believe on the Lord Jesus and experience salvation. He's a gracious God. He's a compassionate God. And for us, we should be gracious and compassionate enough to be honest with those who are lost and tell them heaven and hell are real places. It's not just a state of mind. They're permanent places. Hell is a place of agony and torment. Heaven is a place of ecstasy and blessing. And the presence of God is there and Christ is there. And that's why he delivered us and that's why he rescued us. And so he has this dialogue and he says, listen, can't do it. Lazarus can't pass from um, here to there, there's a chasm. And then verse 27, it says, Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father. He still calls him Father Abraham. This, he's a descendant. And he says, I beg you, therefore, Father, that if that can't happen, if I can't find relief in this torment, at least warn my brothers. 
at least one of my family members, he goes on to say um, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to, to them, lest they also come to the place of torment. I'd like to suggest that this rich man never asks the, doesn't ever say, I'm here unjustly. He recognizes he's in Hades because he deserves it. And he, you know what else he knows? He knows that his brothers are in need of repentance as well. And he says, my only hope is that they can repent. So he says to them, please send Lazarus. You know, still commanding. Lazarus, go serve me. Go and tell my brothers. For I have five brothers that he may tell, lest they also come to this place of torment. He says, it's so bad I don't want them to go. I want somebody to tell them. Remind you who Jesus is talking to, the Pharisees. Who are the brothers? The Pharisees, the self-righteous. And you know what he's telling them in grace and mercy? He's saying, telling them this story so that they know, listen, you're the brothers and you need to repent. This morning, as you hear this parable and these truths unfold, maybe you're here today and you would say, yeah, my heart is hardened towards faith in Jesus and a personal relationship with Him. This morning, your invitation is to ask God to change your heart, to soften your heart, to open you to faith in Him and to believe in Him, to trust on Him that you might receive salvation in Him. That's why Jesus came. Verse 29, Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. What is Moses and the prophets? Well, it's the Old Testament law. It's the Old Testament prophets. It's the Old Testament. It's the Bible. You know what he says? They've got the Bible. It's enough. If they testify of who Jesus is. They foretell who Jesus is. Anyone who might suggest, you know, we don't need the Old Testament anymore. We can unhitch from it. Well, excuse me. You can unhitch from the Old Testament that proclaims the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says they've got the Old Testament scriptures. They've got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he's not done. He puts up his finger and he pleads with Moses. And he goes on to say um, in verse 30, No, Father Abraham, you have to understand me. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If they see a miracle, if someone comes back from the grave and rises from the grave and says, listen, believe on the Lord Jesus. Hell is a real place. Heaven is a real place. Eternal agony, eternal ecstasy. Spend eternity with God and his people forever and ever. Don't go the other direction. He says, if somebody does a miracle or rises from the dead, then they will believe. You know, some people you talk to sometimes, we have conversations. I have conversations with folks all the time. And they sometimes ask questions and they want to stump you and they say, how could a good God allow evil in the world? He's good and there's evil in the world. And I sometimes ask them the question, I say, if I can answer that question sufficiently for you, and you would say, yeah, that's a good answer, would you at that point then believe in Jesus? And if they are honest, they will often tell you no. Because I have more questions. Basically what they're saying, my heart is hardened. When it comes to believing on the Lord Jesus, it's not an intellectual problem. It's not a miracle that needs to happen. It's a 
heart that needs to be changed and softened to the truth of the good news of the gospel. And so as we share the word of God, which is enough, and the Bible is sufficient, you don't need to decorate it and dance around and entertain the people or the crowds. All you need to do is bring the word, because in the end, when they get saved, you realize, whoa, it wasn't me. It was all the Lord Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit works, working in and through me. And he says, he says, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Verse 31, but he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. Who are they talking about there? Jesus. Jesus is going to go and die on a cross. He's going to be buried. And after three days, something miraculous is going to happen. We're going to celebrate it later this month. It's called Resurrection Sunday when Christ rises from the dead. The reason we meet together on Sunday morning to worship a risen Savior, a living Savior, is because He was dead in the grave and three days later He rose in newness of life. The reason we worship and we lift our hands and we gather together is all because of this Jesus who died and rose again in newness of life and he says, even if I do that or someone does that, they still will not believe why the Bible is enough. Let me go back to Paul. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and also the Greek. You and I sometimes think about, what am I going to say if I talk to my neighbor or I talk to a family member. What words do I share? Just share the word. Just share the truth of what the Bible says. Walk them through the Romans road. Tell them about their need for Jesus in Romans 3.23. Tell them about the love of Jesus in Romans 5 verse 8, that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much He loves us. Talk to them about Romans chapter um, 6 verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. Bring them to Romans chapter 10 verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ, that God raised them from there, you shall be saved. Walk them through the scriptures. Talk them about the word. And depend on the Holy Spirit to change their heart and to stir their heart to himself. This morning, if I could give us just some takeaways from this parables as we consider the thrust of this parable, looking at the context and the culture. There'd be four questions I want to leave you, I want you to ask yourself this morning. The first one is this, ask yourself if you believe what the Bible teaches about life after death. There are four things I want to ask you this morning for you to consider and for you to pray about. The first is this, do you believe that death is a reality that we will all face? Some of us are younger, others of us are older, but whether Jesus comes back or we go to him, we're going to die one day. It's a 100% rate. You know, someone was once being interviewed and she had a cancer, a terminal illness, and they said, what is it like living with a terminal illness? And she responded and said on camera, she said, we're all terminal. Some of us know what others not so much. This morning we're invited to, to consider that Death is a reality we will all one day face. Do you believe you will face it one day? You're not promised tomorrow. Secondly, do you believe what you do with Jesus on this side of eternity will determine where you spend eternity? What you do with Jesus, whether you believe on Him and trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord to forgive your sins, 
Whether you believe on him as the one who came, who died, who rose, who ascended, who's coming back again in glory or not, whether you believe or not, is he's your substitute, will ultimately determine where you or I spend eternity. Do you believe that? And thirdly, do you believe that our only hope is in Jesus who is foretold in the Old Testament, who is revealed in the Gospels, who is explained in the epistles, and who is anticipated in Revelation? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus and how he has revealed himself to you and I? That's the questions we need to consider. Secondly, ask yourself if you believe that hell is to be feared and heaven is to be desired. Do you believe that? Like personally, do you know where you're going? Five minutes after you die, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? Because if hell is to be it's to be feared and heaven is to be desired. The question is, where, where will you spend eternity? Can, can I ask you this seriously this morning? Heart to heart, person to person. Answer this question in your heart and your mind. Where will you be five minutes after you die? As you think about that question this morning, how confident were you in your answer? I pray that you will know whether you will be in heaven with God and his people through faith in Jesus or you will spend an eternity without him. I pray that you're not trusting in anything except Christ and Him crucified to, spend, to, to get you into heaven. And then the final question I want to ask you, has God laid anyone on your heart to share with about Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost? I pray that you sense the urgency of the parable of Jesus. We're living in the last days, the time between Jesus' first and second coming, and we are closer to the second coming now more than ever. Are you ready, and are you preparing those that you know around you who are in your circle of influence? We've got Easter coming up at the end of the month, but I don't think you should wait till then. If there are some people on your heart that you need to share your faith with, today is the day, it's not tomorrow. Talk to them about Jesus and what he has done for them, the one who came to seek and to save that which is lost. Can we pray this morning? Father, we're grateful for this parable that you taught that reveal truths about the kingdom of God and that there is life beyond the grave. I'm thankful, Lord, that you have provided a path, a clear path to heaven. And Lord, it's through believing on the Lord Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, who became our substitute and provides us everlasting life. Father, I pray if there's anyone here today who would say in this moment, I know if I died today because that I have not believed on the Lord Jesus, I would not be in heaven, I would be in hell. I pray, Father, that they, in this moment, if they desire to believe in the Lord Jesus, can express it this way. Father, I recognize I am a sinner. I've missed the mark. I've fallen short. I believe the reason Jesus came was to seek me out and to save me. He went to a cross to die on my behalf. He became my substitute. And today I make him my Savior and my Lord. Father, I know that there are some on my heart who I can think of who don't know you. They died today, I know, as far as I know, Lord, and you know their hearts, that they would not go to heaven. Uh, Lord, and I pray that you would place it on my heart to share my faith with them, the truth of your word written in scripture. And I pray for each one here today, whoever you've laid on their hearts, 
and on their minds right now that they would have a unique opportunity in the next 24 hours, in the next 48 hours, in the next week to seize the opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. Help us to pray. Lord, give us your heart for the lost. And Lord, as you seek and save that which is lost, help us to point everyone to you. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the truths therein. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.